Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of recovery. Real quick, I want to mention SobertownPodcast.com. We have an amazing website that will give you tons of resources to help you get sober and find a recovery system that fits you. We have amazing modules to help you fight cravings, build mindsets, and we have five Zooms a week where you can go meet like-minded people and have great discussions. Also, I want to mention a few recovery communities. The I Am Sober app, Boom Rethink the Drink, This Naked Mind. Those are all amazing sober communities where you get around like-minded people to help you get connected and fight your way out of your addiction. Also, I want to mention Silvertown Facebook group. We have an amazing little community of like-minded people coming together and getting sober. And it just doesn't matter which sober community you're involved in. Connection beats addiction, and getting involved in a sober community is a game changer. So let's get on to our next podcast. Boom. If you're on Facebook, you can come over, join us. And that's where I met our next guest, Leslie, a.k.a. Smiley Chick. <laughs> Hello, sober community. So, Leslie, tell us about your physical condition right now. Yeah. So, yeah, let me introduce myself first. I live here in Colorado. You know, besides my addictions, I also deal with uh, multiple sclerosis. You know, I was diagnosed at 19 years old, right out of high school. It's affected my entire life. And at this point in my life, I'm in a power chair full time. I have no use of either one of my legs. I couldn't lift them off the ground, even a centimeter. I have use of only one arm, and it's my non-dominant arm, so I can't write or even hold a book open, or it's just, it's bad. But, so that's my physical condition now, you know, the journey up to this, it's been all kinds of different things. And that's what we're going to get into. You're going to tell us your recovery story and, and kind of how your health yeah. uh, kind of digressed. Is that the yeah, word man. I'm looking for? What's the yep. word I'm looking for? Yeah, depressed. Yeah, totally, totally deteriorated. As, through your addiction and then. Yeah, and because of my addiction, mainly. Oh. I mean, it, it added to it for sure. You know, when you burn the, burn the candle at both ends for as long as I did, it did not help my situation. So, yeah, in the beginning, I, of course, I, I was able to walk and carry on and play basketball and do all those lovely things I miss doing and uh, go fishing and, you know, all that good stuff. But in the beginning, I didn't have any balance. You know, I was, and I was extremely tired. So yeah, when I was diagnosed at 19, back in 1988, and there was no, there was no internet, there were no support groups. And I had this jackass neurologist that gave me no hope for tomorrow. You know, he's like, you're going to be in a chair in a couple of years. Don't have kids because they'll end up taking care of you. And that led me into a deep, dark depression. And then when that happened, I mean, well, that's been part of it for the last 36 years is depression. But when I was getting so depressed and so tired all the time with fatigue, I resorted to drugs. You know, I got turned on to cocaine, maybe about the age of 20. And it gave me such an amazing pep in my step. And, uh, you know, it made me want to be more outgoing and do more things. So I very quickly became hooked on it, you know, started out every weekend and then, you know, it was more days of the week. And then all of a sudden it's every day of the week. And, and then shortly after that, I got introduced to amphetamines, which back in the day is called crank today. It's crystal meth, you know, it's basically all the same stuff. But when I was introduced to those drugs, yeah, I totally got hooked on it. I, it's how I functioned. It's how I functioned at work. It's, it's how I functioned for everything. What was an average day like back in your addiction? Back in my addiction, yeah, the average day for me, you know, I, of course, as soon as I woke up in the morning, I was, that's the first thing I did was a big old 
freaking line of coke and smoked some weed and got tuned in for the day, uh, went to work. I was a very functioning addict. You know, I, I had a, a great job the whole time. I, I made decent money. However, it took being high to get it to happen. And how was your health as this is going on? Right. So yeah, in the very beginning, it was just the minor issues, the balance, uh, the tiredness. And then, I don't know, I was probably 25, 30 years old. And then my bladder was affected. No, so with MS, it affects every nerve in your body. You know, so everything that's controlled by a nerve, which is everything from wiggling your nose to to peeing to to eating, I mean to everything, but it affected my bladder. That added a lot to my depression because yeah, here I was 30 years old and wearing diapers and yeah, it wasn't fun. Did that get you to dive into your addiction even more? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't have any coping mechanisms. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I was completely alone in my battle. You know, my my boyfriend at the time when I started all this crap, I got married to him. He didn't know how to deal with it. He He had no clue. So yeah, I was a total mess. It cost my marriage. You know, my, my marriage was definitely a drug-based relationship. And then he had decided to get sober in the mid-90s. And I decided, no. <laughs> you know, I had gone to treatment in the mid-90s. And when I came out of treatment, I was married to a total stranger who I would have never hooked up with sober, for sure. So, you know, I was sober for 17 months. My marriage was really falling apart. I decided, or we decided to get some dope. And yeah, it brought us back together. You know, our sex life was more active. We were much happier because we were all strung out, you know. But then he decided he wanted to quit. And uh, that's definitely when the marriage crumbled because Leslie didn't want to quit anymore. I was still going strong. And uh, yeah, we got divorced. So I was diagnosed in 88 and then I had another MRI that came about in like 90, let's say 92, 93. And that MRI showed that the first one was a mistake and that, no, I don't have MS. So, you know, I, I was pissed off and I was angry and, you know, cause here I am all hooked on dope and, and yes. Yeah, so I wanted to get off dope. So that's what led to the first so stint. They re-diagnosed you and they told you you didn't have MS. Right. They said the first MRI was was not right. The person that read it did not read it correctly. And that I no longer had MS or I never did. So you that know? kind of blew up your mind. Oh, my God. I was so angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at my doctors, especially, you know, getting jerked around and, you know, and, and at that time I wasn't feeling really that bad. I was, well, I was all strung out. So I'd had my energy back, but well, how, how old was you? How many years had you been dealing with your MS up to this point? Up to this point. So 88 till 93. So what is that? Five years? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the five years I thought I had MS find out that I did not have MS supposedly and went to treatment and about a year. So when I was in treatment, I got out of treatment and I was teaching ceramic classes at treatment and was going back and forth to this town about 50 miles away. And uh, one day it was super duper hot outside and I didn't have any air conditioning. So I'm driving down the highway and all of a sudden I had double vision, like everything was doubled. It was crazy. There was this car in the middle of the highway. And to me, there was two cars and I didn't know which one was real. And it was just horrifying. So that led me to go back to the eye doctor, never, ever thinking I'm going to hear the words multiple sclerosis again, you know, and they're running tests and doing this, that, and the other. And I just happened to mention that, that I had been misdiagnosed with MS years prior. And he's like, really? Vision issues are a huge part of multiple sclerosis. So that's when we did another MRI. And that one concluded that, yes, I did have MS. 
that's when my anger towards God really got bad. I was so pissed off. I couldn't, I was so angry about the whole thing and, and angry at my doctors and just angry at everybody. It was a miserable, miserable existence. I was pissed off for many years. At that time, I was still married. I had a total meltdown. When I went through treatment, that's when Robert decided he wanted to clean up. So he continued clean. I get the re-diagnosis of MS and I said, fuck that. And I'm going to keep partying. That's just how I dealt with it. So the marriage ended. I got divorced in 99. So that's what, five years later. And then I, you know, I, I met the, the man of my dreams who was also my dealer. And, and that's when it really got bad. You know, when you have unlimited access to as much dope as you want, it was bad. It was really bad. You know, and he dealt, he dealt a lot. And so it wasn't even missed when I would do huge amounts. I mean, I was doing a couple grams sometimes a day, you know, and that added up over a few years for sure for him, not for me, but for him. So tell us during that time, you had to have been deteriorating even more physically. Yeah. And then where was your mental in all of this? Mentally, just lost. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know how to react to anything. I didn't know who to reach out to. I was just, I was a freaking mess mentally. Oh, Would you ahead. wake up with like the guilt, shame, remorse, self-loathing? Oh yeah, totally, totally would wake up with the guilt every morning, you know, every day I'd wake up and just be so ashamed of myself. Did you vow, okay, today I'm going to quit? Yeah, yeah, several times. I'm not going to do this shit anymore. I actually made that boyfriend of mine quit dealing because of my addiction, you know, and, and he did. He got out of the business and we shut down and I kept doing dope. And now I was just spending shit tons of money on it instead of doing it for free, basically. Um, yeah. So you you had a lot of times where you just wanted to, you'd wanted to quit, but you couldn't quit. Yeah, it was just too powerful. You know, I, I would quit, you know, I'd say, I'm not doing this anymore. And I'd sleep for a week or two and I'd wake back up and be right back at it, you know. And your health. Yeah, my health. Yeah, continued to deteriorate my mind. You know, I had severe, they call it brain fog with MS. And so I, I couldn't think straight. I had no short-term memory. I mean, I couldn't get myself out of a wet paper bag. It was bad. I was, you know, my bladder issues, of course. My, my right arm actually is the one that started first. You know, I used to be a, a very good basketball player, very athletic and and I loved playing hoop. And then all of a sudden, one day I was out at the basketball court shooting some basketballs. And all of a sudden, my arm wouldn't arch, my right arm. I couldn't get it up in the air the way that you needed to to make a swish. And yeah, that's when my arm started going. That's what started going first. My vision, my vision was always a mess as well. You know, I had bouts of, of course, double vision. I, I still have that all the time. I've had times with no color vision. You know, I went almost two months without any color in my life. And that was pretty horrifying. So yeah, the vision and then my balance, it just got so bad. It looked like I was drunk all the time when I wasn't, you know, I could walk across a flat parking lot and fall flat on my face because I had, I had dropped it. So my, my toes would like not lift up the ground. And that's when my, yeah, my balance was going, my strength in my leg was going. It was bad. Your dealer. Boyfriend. Boyfriend. Yeah. He quit selling dope. Now you're buying it and using it all the time. Your health is deteriorating. Time. Totally deteriorating. Again, my, my old behaviors were still there. I had an affair. I cheated on him and I got caught. So that led to that breakup. And that forced me down here to Canyon City because that's where my parents were. And looking back now, God had his hands in that the entire time. Getting me down away from Colorado Springs. That was my danger zone. Everywhere I went, somebody wanted dope for me or, you know, yeah, it was bad. So I moved to Canyon City. 
was down here, still running dope, going to the Springs two or three times a week, doing my gig. And then, yeah, my buddy Chris, he got busted with a bunch of my dope. So he owed me some money. You know, I still would buy in quantity. I mean, not major quantity, but like an ounce at a time just to pay for my habit. And he was one of the people that would sell for me. So he was important for me to have working for me. So yeah, he gets caught with all my dope. He goes to jail. I selfishly bail him out of jail because mainly I wanted my money back. You know, I wanted him to start running drugs again for me, slinging dope. And that was my intentions. Well, when he got out of jail, that wasn't his intentions. You know, he still had to go to classes and do UAs and and do this and do that. And so he couldn't do what I was wanting him to do. However, I only had to pay 10 grand to get him out, which I hawked my vehicles and my trailer and everything to get that done. You know, I had to take him to classes and and everything else. I had to drive him because his driver's license was revoked from the whole thing. It was not his first charge. He he was in a lot of trouble. So uh, yeah, I had to get him to his court appearances because I didn't want to lose my bond money. Every week he had to go to church. And so he was hitting me up for rides and I didn't mind giving him a ride. So I'd go down and it was, this church was on Sunday evenings. So that worked out great. So I'd drop him off at church and then I'd go down to the river and just do lines and smoke weed and do whatever I wanted to do. And then I'd go back and pick him up at 730. Yeah, I was a total flipping mess. Plus the whole bladder issue. And yeah, I was, I was a mess. Uh, but then it came to be that one day I'd taken him to church and I had to, I had to go pee so bad. So I actually had to go in the building, you know, so he's off and he's going into the sanctuary doing his business. I'm in the bathroom. And that's when I heard the music, the amazing rock and roll music that, I mean, the walls were just like shaking. This thing was so loud. I'm like, what the hell is going on in there? So I poked my head in the sanctuary. I just saw all these people, like I said on my other video, they were jamming to Jesus. You know, it was crazy. And the music was so good. And, you know, so I'd go with him every, you know, couple of weeks or once a month or whatever. Yeah, I actually started attending church, but, you know, I was going for the freaking coffee bar and the music. You know, I was taking him anyway. So yeah, I'm going to church and I'm, I'm, I'm listening. And I'd heard that sermon about the calming of the seas of Galilee. And it just freaking rocked my world the way he told the story. And that's the first time I realized that this person he's talking about was an actual real person. You know, I didn't, I didn't have any idea Jesus Christ was a real person. I had no idea Easter was a religious holiday. No shit. No clue. I was raised with no religion whatsoever. None. You know, I've said before, Jesus Christ was used in my house when I was in trouble. That was my dad's famous word, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I had no, no foundation to work from as it was. I hear the sermon. It rocks my world. I realize he's real. I realize that the Bible is a history book and that these stories are in fact real they're true and but still at that same time I I didn't feel worthy to even be there you know I was expecting lightning to strike me at any moment because of such a what a shitty person I was you know I didn't feel that I deserved to be there I didn't know that I was loved you know and once I started learning more about it and learning that Jesus loved me regardless of what I had done that's when I really started to get more interested I hadn't ever had kids, of course, because I took my doctor's advice long ago. And so I thought to fill that void, I would start helping out with the children's ministry. So tell us, tell us what the doctor told you about the kids, which caused a lot of your depression. Yes, absolutely. You know, I love kids. I've always loved kids. And he told me, do not have children because they're going to end up having to take care of me. And that's something that you lived with all these years. Yes, yes. And the pain and the the sorrow of it all. I mean, I, I freaking love kids. I still love kids. So yeah, I had wanted to start working in the children's ministry, not as a teacher. And the lady, Renee, she says, oh, no, Leslie, you need to teach. I was like, what? 
because she just loved me. <laughs> so I says, I don't know anything about the Bible. You know, I don't know anything. And she's like, you'll learn as you go. And this is when I started trying to get sober. So, you know, teaching every other week made it to where I had to get sober every other week for a few days, you know, a couple of days to prepare for my, my class. And then as soon as Sunday night was over, I was right back at it. But, but that's where it started, me starting to get clean. And as you're getting clean, your health is deteriorating. And that's when you yeah. started using a cane. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was at that point in time that I had to start using a cane. And, you know, that was, that was hard to swallow. And then it was also at that time that I got, I got invited to a healing journey class at church, which is just, it's a class to help you deal with all of your crap from your past and to be rid of it once and for all. And I knew that that's what I needed because I had a lot of crap I needed to deal with. So I went to the first healing journey. And at that point, my health really started getting bad. So I went to a walker, just I couldn't hold on to anything anymore with my cane. And it was just exhausting trying to do life on a cane. So yeah, I went to the walker, still working on myself. I was instructed to do a timeline of my life, you know, all the good things in my life and the bad things and, you know, lay it all out on paper, still not knowing, you know, what the purpose of this timeline was, you know, so you know, I ended up going to this this class like five times before my list was completed. Like I said, I had eight pieces of paper all taped together on my freaking wall of all the crap and the shame and the guilt. I mean, that was my life right there on those eight pieces of paper. And the next step was to work through them one at a time, you know, between me and my pastor. And I tell him what happened what I did. And I had a female pastor too, you know, explained all the ugly, you know, and sharing it with them, you know, similar to a step four in AA, you know, it's a moral inventory. It's very similar to that, you know, and then what is it? Step six, you go through it with somebody. I, I don't even remember. I think it's five. Is it five? So it's really similar to a step four and five, you know, and working through these things individually forgiving myself for every item, forgiving the people that had hurt me. And the main part of it was to make amends, you know, so anybody I could still get a hold of, I made amends to, you know, I admitted to my parents, you know, the times I stole from them, the times that I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, you know, I fessed up all kinds of stuff, but by doing it, it was lessening the load of guilt and shame. Was you, you know? still using through all of this? I was. I actually, I was still using, but yet he was just preparing the way to make it a little bit easier, I guess. So yeah, after that fifth healing journey, when I had worked through everything, that's when I got the nudge from him to stick my ass in drug treatment. And I did. And I stayed. I went through drug treatment. It was really powerful. It was good for me. Unfortunately, when I got out of treatment, I went home to a guy who was still doing dope. So it made it really hard for me to stay clean. And I did for a couple months. I didn't do any dope. You know, I slipped and I did a line. No big deal. Went right back to being sober. Then I slipped another time. But let me add in there that my pastor and the leader of the children's ministry, they all knew I was doing dope. I was very open with them. They knew that I was trying to change. They knew because I went through the healing journey classes. So, of course, Pastor Luke knew about it. Uh, everybody was well aware of my addictions. So that was cool. They loved on me regardless. They met me right where I was. I have an amazing church family that, you know, I, I talk loud and proud on my Facebook page. And half my friends are people from church. So they know everything. I'm not shy about any of it. They know that I was a whore, you know, I was a terrible person and I don't deny any of it, but they also know the new me, the new Leslie. I'm so blessed with them and for them being patient with me and for them encouraging me along the way, you know? And so, yeah, so I say that it was a nudge that got me to go back into treatment, but 
it was them that got me to go. You know, but this is second treatment. Second treatment, where I finally was through with my shit. I dealt with all my guilt. I had no excuse to keep getting high. I mean, I was fine mentally. I was in a much better spot. You know, and then there I am learning about Jesus and learning that that God didn't do this to me. God didn't punish me in any way, shape, or form. And that was super powerful for me. You know, I, I was no longer mad. <laughs> Where's your health at now when you get out of rehab? Yeah, I'm in a full-blown power chair, can't walk, can't do anything. You know, I but you know, I could I could like transfer and stuff. So yeah, physically when I got out of rehab, yeah, so I'm I'm in this power chair. I guess I do want to share my story with you about my bladder. So you know, I wore diapers for like I'd say 15 years, you know, pull-ups, whatever you want to call them. Because I was peeing my pants three or four times a day, you know, it was bad. So I'm at church one night. I went to this healing. It's called a healing room where you get all kinds of people laying hands on you and praying for you. So I had gone in for prayer and just for my MS altogether, you know, just the whole, they didn't know anything about my bladder. They didn't know anything about my issues, but I went in for prayer. They gave me prayer and this is no shit. The next day when I woke up, I have not worn a diaper since. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. Man, it that's was, a glory to God right there. So they Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, yeah. And that's been part of your driving force in your addiction was yes. your shame for diapers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was nasty and it was terrible. <laughs> and I never felt clean. You know, it was it was awful. So yeah, taking that away from me, that just reassured my faith with him. You know, and there's some other incidents that happened as far as my faith. You know, I I had decided I was going to give my life to Jesus and that I wanted him to be my savior and I was wanting to follow him. But still being skeptic, kind of not really knowing for sure. And I knew I wanted to give my life to Jesus and wanted him to help me turn it around. I decided to get baptized. And so we're over there at the Arkansas River that runs through my town. And it's August and it's the water is ice cold because it's still snow melt. So that river was so freaking cold. And when I sat in the water and I mean, it took the breath out of me. It was that freaking cold. And when they, you know, started talking to me and do you want to give your life to Jesus? And yes, I do. They dunked me back in that water and it was so warm dude that water was so warm and I shot out of that water and was just crying it's like holy cow this is real that's when I knew it was real the bladder healing was two or three years later after that so I've I haven't worn a diaper now and oh, I want to say six years probably not a one have not had an accident let's just say this again okay they prayed over you Yep. And the next morning, yep. you, yeah. you've never had to wear a diaper since. No, no. I had probably eight or nine, 10 people all laying hands on me and just praying it out. And, and, you know, some of them were talking in tongues, which that's a whole nother story, but yeah, just praying it out, you know, to heal my body of all, you know, they're laying their hands on my legs and my arm because my arm is obviously trashed and yeah. But they had no clue I had a bladder issue. None. But the next morning, I woke up and my urge to have to pee wasn't there, you know? And I, I of course, still wore diapers for a couple more, you know, even probably a week. But and just being blown away that, wow, <laughs> I didn't pee my diapers. It was crazy. God has been so good to me in so many ways and has given me more miracles than that but the bladder thing was definitely huge huge he's healed me of my brain mush you know i am as clear as i've ever been and uh, yeah god is good so yeah. you're clean at this time off the methamphetamines yep yep i am so your health though in other areas is still deteriorating yeah my health is still going downhill you know, yeah, getting worse and worse. And 
and I'm a flipping mess. And that's why I introduce myself as less the mess. Let's talk about some of the pain. Uh, you had to take pain medication. Okay. So tell us about that pain in your feet and legs, right? Right. Yeah. So, so it's been four years ago this last November. Well, let's back up even a little further. So 2018, I get a stem cell transplant and it was freaking amazing. You know, so I'm in my chair at the time I have the transplant and over the next eight months, I'm up walking and I walked 75 feet one day. Yes, I was bouncing on somebody else. They weren't hanging on to me, but I was just kind of bouncing on them. But I was walking. I was doing amazing things, giving all the glory to God. And then I got a bladder infection from hell that took me down. I was in the hospital for 17 days. It took me down hard. And when that happened and I'm in the hospital, that's when I lost my ability to walk again. And I haven't walked since, not once. And also when I got released from the hospital, I developed neuropathy from the knees down. So we're going on four and a half years and I still have it. Neuropathy for me, for a lot of people that have it, it's, it's different. Either their feet are numb or their hands are numb. And, and I would give everything, give everything I had if they were just numb. Mine is extremely painful. My calves feel like they're in a table vice and they're being squeezed with thousands of pounds of pressure and they're super, super tight. I can't bend my legs myself. Someone else has to bend them for me. That's my calves. And then my feet, on the outside of my feet, they're extremely hot and sensitive to touch. They can't touch anything, whether it's shoes, socks, my blanket, my sheets, anything. I have to sleep when I am laying down with my feet propped up to where my feet aren't touching the mattress. It is so freaking painful, dude. It's, it's awful. And then the inside of my feet are 30 below. They're freezing all the time. And I, you know, 22 hours out of the day, I'm with a heating pad wrapped around my feet to give me a sense that they're being warmed, you know, but they're still cold. It sucks. But, you know, I don't even know how to put that into words because I'm still, I'm still happy. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be alive. So you're dealing with this pain and you're off the meth, but you start right. taking pain meds. The hydrocodone. Yeah. And actually in the beginning, of course, when I started coming or started getting the neuropathy and I was clean, I'd been sober for what, a year or so for me with this pain. I know how to shut my pain receptors off. Leslie knows exactly how to do it. She does dope. You know, for me to not cave and do dope with this much pain is nothing but Jesus. There's no other, no other reason. Because I'm sure your mind at times was screaming at you. Just oh, do some dude. dope. I have been suicidal bad. And that's when, that's when they... You know, and they had offered me painkillers for years and I've turned them down. I didn't want nothing to do with, I don't like pain pills, but I caved and I went ahead and I, they put me on hydrocodone. I was on that for a couple of years. That of course, after a while wasn't working. So they put me on oxys and I, I did oxys, you know, I was at three a day and, and that was miserable. And I knew I needed to, I mean, <laughs> just to be probably too much information, but it makes it to where you can't poop. <laughs> I didn't like that. So I kept reducing the amount I was taking, trying to relieve that issue that I had. So I was down to one a day, but then I ran out and I didn't re-up my prescription in time. So I ran out on a Friday and I didn't get the script filled until the next Tuesday. So between Friday and Tuesday, I was a flipping mess. I mean, crawling out of my skin. And that's when it dawned on me just how addicted I was to the oxys. So here you were battling your pain with yeah. the pain meds. And then all of a sudden you find yourself addicted again. Totally. To and, you know, and knowing that they weren't really helping me anyway, you know, they weren't, I was still in pain, you know, but yet 
your mind is so powerful. And it was my mind telling me that you got to take these things and, and convincing myself that they were helping me, which they weren't. But yeah, me running out, that's when it dawned on me, yeah, I am an addict of freaking opiates and never thought that would happen. So, you know, I, of course, refilled my prescription and slowly, it was just last summer, started weaning myself off. I think I started in June and, you know, I started taking, you know, half a pill a day. There were, of course, those days that I would convince myself I needed one or even back to two, you know, whatever. But I just slowly started weaning myself off the oxys, and I finally got it licked with this last September. And but during you know, that time, you went into deep depression, right? Totally, totally, yeah, totally. And the suicidal thoughts, and yeah, it was bad. I'm miserable, totally bedbound, laying on my couch. I'm in my bed, but I laid on my bed or on my couch 23 hours out of every day for two years. You know, I got tired of not having a life. You know, I barely even would get out of bed to go to church. I was watching it online. It was just freaking miserable. But that's when I came up with my bucket list of things that I wanted to do prior to the neuropathy, prior to the MS, you know, and the one thing I'd always wanted to do, you know, I had a list of 10 things I wanted to do. So the scariest thing on my list is to go skydiving. And, you know, so just so everybody gets a clear picture. This was after two years of depression, laying on the couch. Yes. You decided to make this bucket list. Yep. Yeah. Because I was tired of not living. So I needed to, mm-hmm. to make a bucket list and start, just make a plan to do something, you know, to get something to get my heart pumping again. And yeah, I chose the scariest thing on there, assuming or knowing that if I can jump out of a freaking airplane, I can do anything on my list. And that helped my depression. You know, it really helped my depression. Number one, it gave me something to be excited about. You know, I gave myself three months, made my reservation three months in advance, giving myself, giving myself time to really rely on God and giving it to him, you know, and trusting him with it. And I hear from God audibly, you know, a lot of people don't, but I do. And I knew that he would tell me if he didn't want me to jump out of a plane. And instead of telling me that, money just started pouring in to pay for everything. So the community got behind you. My church family got behind me. And I mean, the jump itself was a couple hundred. The videos and pictures were a couple hundred. My shirt was almost a hundred. And I came out with extra money that I gave my guy the money for a tip. It was amazing how God put that all together. And I trusted him. I knew, I knew that I was going to be okay. So I go out there and I meet with the guy and, you know, he's got 15,000 jumps under his belt and, and he's jumped with a few hundred handicapped people, you know? So this company was so amazing and so skilled at what they do. And, and yeah, I, I show up out there. It takes three or four of them to get me dressed into this harness and, and they were so good to me. And, while I'm in there getting dressed, another guy came in. He's like, Leslie, you are popular. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, there are a ton of people out there for you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was expecting maybe five or six people. And uh, I wheeled out there after they got me dressed. And like, there's 40 or 50 people there from my church, my pastor. And it was freaking crazy. I felt like a freaking rock star. Yeah, they're all praying on me. And we're just having a good time and trusting in the Lord that I'm going to be okay. And yeah, then after that, I wheel my chair over to the plane where four or five guys grab a hold of me and throw me up in the plane and hook me to my guy. And it was insane. But the whole time trusting in God, I mean, I knew I was going to be okay. I did, you know, and I also knew that if I wasn't okay, that that was his plan all along, you know, so the plane's taken off. Right. Yeah. The planes tell us, was you scared? (laughs) You know, actually, the first time I wasn't scared because I trusted him that much. However, you know, after we circled the area a bunch of times to get up to that, it was like 16,000 feet we had to get up to. So, and I'm still not scared, still not scared, still not scared until 
this green light comes on on the side of the inside of the plane and they're like green light green light and they opened up the side door and the first video that I have of it you could see the look on my face it was priceless I'm like what the hell have you lost your freaking mind woman <laughs> but I it was too late man I was there I was strapped and we're going yeah it was it was such a god moment it really was you know, so yeah, I'm I'm hanging on the side of the plane and he's hooked to the back of me. And of course I can't grab a hold of anything to get out on the side of the plane to fall. So we just had to somersault out, you know, and so someone was behind him pushing him, who was pushing me, and out we went. And it was so incredible. It was so scary, you know, because you're going 120 mile an hour free falling for, I don't know, probably 6,000 feet. I mean, it didn't take me very freaking long to go that far. It was amazing. And then, uh, yeah, I, uh, they opened the parachute and I felt like a freaking eagle. I mean, it was, it was such an amazing moment. It was so spiritual. I'm up there high fiving Jesus, man. I'm like, this is so cool. And it was just, it was cool because, you know, and I say it a lot that I can't walk, but I can sure fly, man. And it was, it was so, liberating and i was just like wow first time i felt like i was living in years and um yeah well, well literally you came off the couch yeah after making and a I, bucket list yep. and then you're falling out of a plane yep yep and i yeah and so you know when i come back home after the whole ordeal you know my heart's still pumping i'm still excited i've got things to do places to go people to see i went on a trip to see my family back in Iowa for our hundredth family reunion. You know, I figured if I could jump out of a plane, I could at least ride on one. Right. <laughs> so that bucket list has really yeah, changed your life. I mean, you it wrote is. some things down and then mm -hmm. you started putting action behind the words. Yep. I started doing it, man. If you know, there's why not, you know, I mean, if I can jump out of a freaking plane, why can't I go to Iowa? Why can't I like I'm going to Nat? I'm going to Daytona 500 here in a couple in a week. Why can't I? You know, these are all things I would have never done. Number one, if I was still spun out because I wouldn't have had the money to do this kind of stuff. But number two, I would have never done not sober in any way, shape, or form. And I would have never done that stuff prior to me being in this condition. Hell no. But now that I'm in this condition, for me, it's the thought of living is way scarier than the thought of dying. And that's just the truth. You know? So now you've jumped out of the airplane twice. Twice. You've gone and seen your family to reunion. And yep. you're on your way to Daytona next week. Yep. Right. Why not? You know, and I'm, I'm in no shape in any way, but I'm going, you know. And I heard God or my dad, I don't know who it was, that said, let's see, you just jumped out of a freaking plane. Of course, you can go to Daytona. You know, oh, right. so right, yeah, and and I never dreamt I'd get this opportunity, and it's it's amazing. So it your depression was paralyzing before. Uh, yes. Where are you at yeah. with that now? My depression, I'm doing really well, actually. Thank you, because I'm on a mission now. You know, the one thing I started doing is well, I started because I had to quit Sunday school because I had gotten so sick. Let me back up to that. So everything's going good. I'm all excited about life. And then I get COVID, October of 2021. And I get COVID. I, I had had my dad over to watch the race with me, not knowing I had COVID. And so I gave him COVID. We both went to the hospital at the same time. And I came home and he did not. You know, so that was, that was really tough on me. And then I get sick again in January of 2022, sick again in March. They had the, just the depression from all of this. But yeah, and that's when I went skydiving again. And that, that helped so much. You know, depression is probably one of the most disabling symptoms of MS. So you're been. fighting depression by getting yeah. active. Yes, yes. I had to get a life again. I had to, I had to come up with a purpose. And, you know, I was inspiring so many people just by being able to jump out of a plane in my condition and 
people all over town were like, I saw you in the newspaper. And I inspired so many people that way. And I was inspiring so many people at church, you know, and now I am teaching youth group, which has opened up a whole new opportunity for me to share my story. You know, I, the director of the youth group, he came to me one Sunday, says, Leslie, I want you to share your testimony with the kids on Tuesday. And I'm like, holy crap, Tuesday, I had no time to prepare. But I said, sure, I'll do it. You know, and, and I told him, because I'm like, well, I'm going to have to G-rate it. And he's like, absolutely not. Don't G-rate it. Don't clean it up. He says, tell them, tell them the truth. Tell them what you went through, your emotions, the pains. I want them to hear it all. And so I gave my testimony to those sixth and seventh graders and told them all about my drugs and my sickness. And just like I'm telling you, you know, I told them just in a shorter version, you know, it was like 30, 35 minutes that I had their undivided attention. And I, I told them and I shared my story and I have no doubt that I made a huge impact on them, mainly because I heard from some of their parents that like, wow, my kid came home blown away at what you've done you know, and I shared my skydiving with them. And that and you're also, Leslie, you're also inspiring other folks with MS. Yeah. Oh, I mean, for sure. I'm, I'm part of an MS group called Rolling with MS and everybody in there is in a wheelchair. I didn't get involved for the longest time because they were so Debbie Downer, man, so depressed and and then I just started sharing my story with them and making videos for them and sharing my skydiving and encouraging them to get off their asses and do something, you know, just because you're sick doesn't mean life's over. And it's not, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. And I know that I've inspired and changed several of their attitudes towards it. You know, you're not, life isn't over. It's not a death sentence. Well, and you've now, inspired me, Leslie, because you. Uh, we started the Silvertown Facebook group and then you came into that community. Yeah. And then I see these pictures of you uh, falling out of an airplane <laughs> right, no, yeah. wheelchair bound, and you're jumping out of airplanes. I'm like, oh my gosh! Look with at this a girl. smile on my face. With a smile on your face. Always, I always have a smile. And you know, I'm actually, you know, it used to be a facade for many years. I'd be smiling, and I just didn't feel it on the inside. But I am truly happier than I have ever been, and I am in the absolute worst worst condition that I've ever been. Just say that um, again. I got to hear that again. Yeah, so I am. I'm I'm for the condition that I'm in right now, which is shit. I have never in my life been happy like I am right now. That's just incredible. And it, it but it's it's Jesus, buddy. It really and, is. and we love you in our community too. Thank you. So, you know, not everybody knows it. When you send messages and you text it, you only have your yeah. one thumb. Yeah, my one thumb. You know, that's why I do do a lot of my my videos, you know, because I'm not feeling it. I'm not, you know, not in the mood and yeah. But if well, I've got can, time and you can do your send your videos into Silvertown anytime. We love your videos. Right. But cool. I, I just want everybody to get the picture that you're yeah. helping support everybody there. Yeah. By you know, with the movement of one thumb. Yeah. And that's all you my have. My one thumb and my mind. And your mind. You know? Yeah. I've got my mind. I can communicate well. I Yeah, I've got clear thoughts. And I've got a story. I've got a story that's worth sharing, you know, to encourage people to, you know, even if you're in the worst of predicaments, you could still be happy. You could still get sober. You know, you, you can rock on right past it. You, you know, can there's... find your way out of the, the darkness, out of the trenches. Yes. yes. But at the same time, you've got to do it. You can't can't sit around waiting for somebody to do it for you. I had to pay someone a long time ago. Um, <laughs> right. Right. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be dick broke. for trying to tell, trying to pay people to do my stuff for me, but yeah, it's, it's up to you. You know, if, if you want to get clean, if you want a better life, you've got to do it. You know, sure. A counselor or a therapist is going to help give you direction and whatnot, but it's still on you. You know, do you want so, a better life or do you not? So, what advice do you have for anybody in those first those first days in their sobriety? My main piece of advice for people early on is breathe. You know, breathe. You know, don't 
even don't even take it one day at a time, take it one freaking minute at a time in the very beginning and just, you know, make your goal. I want to get through the next hour, you know, get me through the next hour, you know, but yeah, it's a community. You've got to have like-minded people. Like you say, you've got to have people that are willing to, to listen to your bad parts and listen to your good parts, to encourage you, to lift you out of those bad parts. And my main thing is I encourage all the time is to get involved. You know, your kind words for somebody else is going to actually end up lifting you up as as well as them. You know, it's just to stay positive and share your stories. And, you know, we want to hear your stories. We want to share your journey. We do. And by hearing their journeys keeps us sober because we don't want to go back to that crap. You know, (laughs) we don't. Yeah, man. Right. And then it's their stories that keep us on solid ground. You know, if it were easy, then you're not going to get anything out of it. It's, it's the journey. It's the. Well, if it was easy, we wouldn't have 3 million people die a year. That's just the alcohol. And then you, you throw in the, the drugs on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Through the roof. It, It is not easy. It's the biggest battle I've ever fought. It's sad. And that's my mission right now. You know, like I shared my testimony with those kids and that's what I feel God's calling me to right now. Not only for Sobertown to be involved with Sobertown, but I want to start going to the middle schools, you know, going to other churches and talking to the kids because that's where it's got to be stopped before they get influenced by the high schoolers. It's got to be changed at that young age. You know, there's no reason to hide it from them. You inspire me. Thank you, honey, very much. And thank you for sharing your story with us here on Sobertown. Right on. I appreciate the opportunity. I've been looking forward to it for sure. Me me too. Okay. Thank you all for joining us. I want to thank Leslie, a.k.a. Smiley Chick, for sharing her sober recovery story with us. What an amazing story. And if you want to get to know Leslie a little bit better, jump on over to Sobertown Facebook group. She's there. She's one of the admins and would love to see you there. Have an amazing day. Thank you for listening to Silvertown podcast. Boom.